welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. Hello, hello. On today's episode, we are joined by somatic experiencing therapist Maggie Palmer for a conversation all about slowing down to land in the present. Together, we talk about the language of sensation, orienting to pleasure, and working through our fears about polyamory. Y'all, Maggie is a very important person in my life that I am so lucky to have in my community and that I care for deeply. I am always so in awe of the way that Maggie is able to hold space for other people and the way that she is connected to herself and her ability to express herself. And above all, I think I really admire the way that she is extremely vulnerable and the strength in that. When we were talking about polyamory and when she was first exploring it, she was so honest about the difficulties of jealousy and insecurity and attachment that came up for her and the way that she has grown through all of this to a better understanding of herself and a better understanding of her relationships with other people. And I I just, I'm lucky to know you, Maggie, and I love you dearly. So y'all are going to learn so much from her. I can promise you that. And happy May, everyone. This month, the Modern Anarchy family on Patreon will be supporting the National Network of Abortion Funds, which is a nonprofit that helps to remove financial and logistical barriers to abortion access. With the recent release of the Supreme Court draft on their ruling for Roe v. Wade, I figured there was no better cause to be using our resources towards for this month. My heart is so saddened and I think it can be so difficult, at least for me, it's hard to hear things like this and to know that larger bodies of government have the ability to enact legislation that directly contradicts our rights to bodily autonomy. And in that, it can feel like we have no control. It can feel like there is nothing that we can do to really change this situation. And I just want to remind you that Your voice is powerful. Your resources are powerful. Forget the Patreon, whatever, you know, like do what you can with the resources and the time and the energy that you have to have meaningful conversations, to protest, to learn more. That is where we can focus our direction and attention towards recognizing what is within our control and what is outside of our control and in that finding peace. So if you want to take action with your resources to support not only the making of this podcast and all the work that goes into each episode each week, but also support the National Abortion Fund and our right to bodily autonomy, then check out that Patreon link below. I also release an exclusive bonus episode answering your Patreon questions just for you about sex, relationship, existential dread, all of the good things. So check out that Patreon link below and it might feel like we can't do a lot just as one person, but together I promise you that we are very, very powerful. So y'all, 
Tune in. I sound great. Yes. Maybe it's just I don't have the right equipment. Maybe yeah, that's, that's yes. Yes. It's not me. It's the machine. It will. It's the mic. Blame it on the mic. Are you comfortable? I am. Okay. I'm still adjusting this. How do you feel about the sound? Good. Yeah. Okay, good. I've been listening to... <laughs> have you ever heard of the show One Tree Hill? Did you ever watch that? I've heard of it. I don't really know. It's not... It's... It's a... I... It's very representative of my child, like adolescence. Really? And the three actors who were the lead, were some of the leads on it, have recently started a podcast where they rewatch each episode and mm -hmm. talk about it. And there's a lot of... The showrunner has been accused of sexual harassment oh, and God. misconduct and like really treating people like shit. Wow. And so this, these three women have now really taken back their experience of the show by rewatching wow. it and, and naming what happened to them and reconnecting yeah. through it. Yeah. And long story short, I feel, I feel like I'm channeling them right now because Ooh. I have huge, huge crushes on all three of them. Really? Oh my God. <laughs> I, like, I want to be them. I want to be their best friends. Uh, I want to cuddle with them. I just, yeah. I love them dearly. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, hey, it's all I'm pertinent. Yeah. What, what do you feel like you're channeling of them? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think partly the voice. I'm ooh. like, ooh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it a little sultry. Yeah. I'm gonna land in my core. Yeah, and yeah, that's mostly it. How does it feel to do that? Does that feel natural to you? It does. Oh, it feels nice. That's good. I can feel a lot of vibration happening through my neck, throat, into my chest, and it, I can tell like the energy is just grounding into my hips a lot right now, wow. and that feels nice. Wow. Yeah, you're much more in tune than I think I would be even to describe that. Because I don't feel – I've been trying to channel that sort of voice and calming energy when I teach yoga. Mm. And it's really hard for me to feel like that's like authentic. It feels a little like forced. But like I would never even choose to describe it as like in my body in some way. Mm. I think that comes from your background. I think so too. Yeah. yeah I yeah. spent several years now yeah. tuning a lot more into yeah. my embodied self. Yeah. Where does that journey start? That's such a good question. And I don't, speaking of narratives around this, I'm not sure I know. So yeah. we might be discovering this together. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. So I think, I think it does relate to how I ended up becoming a therapist mm. broadly, which yeah. I'm going to take us way back. We're going to be do on it. A this is exactly what we do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I have always been a very emotional, quite sensitive human. And I think uh, growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s where mental health wasn't talked about very much, I definitely received the message that I should not be feeling my feelings quite mm. so strongly. Like there, people aren't going to want to be my friends if I'm sad all yeah. the time <laughs> yeah. or just sad sometimes. Um, and I think I learned to clamp those down for a whole range of reasons mm. from a whole range of influences. But the one place where I was able to really freely – connect to my emotions was through theater in particular mm, mm -hmm. as a huge yeah. theater and music kid and I always loved to play the very emotional intense sad mm, moments mm. Um, and was quite good at it if yeah. I do say so myself because I was able to bring real authenticity and would often it was a huge catharsis when yeah. I would cry on stage yeah. as someone else but it was, it was my own emotion and that felt really safe mm. and I think since leaving high school, going to college, shifting in and out of the theater world, but away from performance, I've been looking for opportunities to connect to my 
emotional self more genuinely, more sure. freely. And I think that's where that's probably what led me to therapy because yeah. I realized, oh, I'm looking for more emotional presence in myself. I'm looking to feel more connected to all parts of myself because when I'm not, I'm anxious and unhappy and lonely. And then I realized this field that I was peripherally interested in for a variety of reasons, if I wanted to serve well in it and show up for people, then I needed those same values and, and intentions I had for mm -hmm. myself. I needed to cultivate in a professional setting too to help other folks yeah. land in their full selves, connect to different parts of themselves that might be scary, mm -hmm. might be threatening. We're circling into then somatic work or yeah. feeling fully embodied, partly through grad school. Actually, it was after grad school, and I, I was realizing that one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one or small group work for therapy felt a lot more attuned to my capacity and my speed, I mm -hmm, guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I was trying to figure out what's a framework that I could ground myself in to support people through, and that's how I discovered somatic work, because mm -hmm. I realized in order to connect to my whole emotional self and support folks connecting to all different aspects of themselves, we've got to bring in the body. Yeah. So much of our culture is yes. focused on the neck up, is focused on cognitive processing, which mm -hmm. is a huge strength, but it's only a piece of the puzzle. Yep. And frankly, it's a piece, a very, it's like the tip of the iceberg, really, when it comes to the human experience. Yes. And I think that's how I, I, I sort of offhandedly went to a community workshop Grounded in somatic experiencing concepts, but using a slightly different method for sharing that information. And I was sitting there hearing about how so much of our culture, whether it's rooted in white supremacy, in capitalism, in grind culture, is all about pushing and pushing and pushing and, and picking up the pace on the treadmill when really our bodies, like that's overriding our bodies' mm -hmm. natural flow. Mm -hmm. And we each have different capacities and different speeds, but we're not machines and our world really expects us to be machines. Yes. And all of that really resonated. And I realized, oh yeah, I'm moving. I'm forcing myself to move at a pace that's way faster than I need or, or yeah. want it to be. Mm. So I started tuning more into what my body was wanting moment to moment rather than trying overriding those impulses or those calls for support. Right, right. You were talking about the difference between the speed that you noticed in your life of trying to tune back in. Could you say more about like the difference you notice in different speeds so that other people could kind of follow too of what does that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm trying to think of a really salient example. Well, I even I think frankly, if we think about where we're at right now in this mid pandemic era. I don't yeah, want to say post, I know, but yeah, we're yeah. still on Zoom a lot. We're still, I think one piece, if you think about how quickly our, many of our minds move, right? Like, I feel like I'm talking a mile a minute, hopefully. No, <laughs> hopefully you're good. I'm not. <laughs> um, but oftentimes the mind has a much faster pace than, yeah. than the body, right? And an example of that might be, well, I guess I'll turn it back to you first. Sure. Like, I'm curious when I talk about the different speeds or mm -hmm. paces, mm -hmm. is there anything that, that you think of for your, yourself that relates or resonates? I mean, I think of going off coffee very recently oh, and how that has been yeah. such a speed shift of my just mind because coffee mm. is a psychotropic substance that affects our mind state, right? Yeah. And so I've been a little bit calmer, not so rushed. Mm. Yeah. And you, how do you notice that? 
I, I, that's a hard question, I guess. Yeah. So I'm like, huh, interesting. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, I, yeah, I don't know. I, do, I don't feel as pulled, like almost like being dragged by on a rope that's like a fast driving car when I'm on coffee, trying to constantly do mm. next thing, think, do the next thing, next thing, next thing without even like taking the time to breathe in between tasks and yeah. between thoughts versus just the state of, Maybe even a little bit more like yawning. I mean, currently I'm adjusting, right? But like having space to kind of take breaths oh, yeah. and feel in between the moments instead of feeling like the next one, next one, next one, which is what coffee is great for mm-hmm. if that's what you want to do. To keep pushing through. Yeah. Which, yeah, a lot of times we're tasked with doing. I think mm-hmm. that's a really great example. And that's actually – that's certainly something I, I think about a lot mm-hmm. and try and encourage other folks to – to start considering for themselves this idea of these transition points rather than bolting from from task to task, whether that's yeah. mental or an actual activity that you have to engage in. Mm-hmm. Can we give ourselves a couple of moments to slow down? Mm. Because when we don't when we don't do that, we're kind of just revving up the engine of our bodies more and more and more. It's like yeah. we're bumping up that treadmill rather than creating a little bit mm. of space like you're describing to yawn. Yeah. Which is an indicator that the brake part of our nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, is turned on and allowing a little bit of slow. Mm. And then some of that energy that's been building, whether it's excitement, whether it's stress, whether it's anger, fear, joy, when we take a breath, when we land in the here and now, mm-hmm. that drops some of that energy. Mm. I like this. I don't know if other people would like this. I feel like our world is it directly against what you're saying. Yeah, especially I think it is. right. Like, yeah. I mean, I God, I mean, I know I was talking about Instagram and other things like that, but like any social media, even news that you're just constantly scroll, 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 mm-hmm. new thing, new thing, new thing. Facebook endless scrolling. Like, we're not really taught. I feel like as a culture to ever pause, no. at least in our Western culture. No, I think that's really true. And I I agree, and I wonder too, though, for folks who might have some, mm, what's the right word? Who might sa- this might sound kind of sus? I'm going to bring yeah, in exactly. my kiddos' language yeah. here. That's pretty sus, Maggie. Right? <laughs> um, I just wonder, like, a question I often ask my clients when they're coming in to see me is, mm-hmm. well, I frame it first as this: We, if I were to ask you, Nicole, or yeah. anyone, yeah. like, when, how do you notice when you're feeling? stressed i feel it in my chest Mm. probably mostly um i feel panicked and i feel like everything's going wrong it's a lot of internal thoughts Mm. so you notice it yeah in your thoughts a lot of maybe catastrophizing Mm -hmm. and then maybe there's tension or discomfort in your chest Mm -hmm. and my stomach in your stomach Yeah. yeah so yeah you have a pretty clear sense from an embodied and a and a mindful state of how you know when there's a lot of stress physiology happening yeah. when you're not feeling yeah. good. Yeah. How do you know when you're feeling at ease or feeling more regulated, feeling like you're in a flow? That's a harder question because I've been yeah. trying to rewrite what that answer is. Mm. Um, I know from some of my research from classes, they had talked about how like the Western model of what is happiness is like a 
high activity state that is constantly going. But in other cultures around the world, it's actually a lower state of more tranquility and peace, serenity, stuff like that. And so even that question of content, I think is really hard because I think in the past I would have said like, it's when I'm out with friends and then doing this and then doing that and like coming to a different state of, oh, you know, maybe it is when I would consider boredom. Mm -hmm. Actually reframing that to be like, wow, I'm actually calm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I've been trying to rework that in the times of, you know, peace to not look at like, well, what else should we be doing right now? Clearly you're not doing something else. There mm-hmm. needs to be more. That constant, that push to need to be doing, producing, it's So going. hard. Yes. And I think, frankly, I'm not here to try and convince someone that they shouldn't be pushing themselves. If yeah. that's feeling rewarding in some way, then that's going to be important. And I would probably challenge folks to also consider what's the toll that mm. that takes on our bodies. I'm curious, I would be curious, like, how much, how much body tension, how much pain do people experience? What, what's your relationship with sleep like? Like yeah. what, if contentment, if satisfaction is about running a marathon or sprinting is, yeah. is all about pushing, 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 what are the other impacts of that yeah, on and ourselves? Exactly. And the other people around us, yeah. right? Because when you don't even know how it's impacting you, yeah. then it goes out to impact the way that you're in relationship mm-hmm. with people. You've got that hunch on your shoulder. You're already a little bit more on edge. Absolutely. And I think you're right. Like I continue to find some discomfort when I'm feeling more slow and more settled. Mm. Even several years into practicing slowing down, I have still – my mind still couples slowness with a lack of safety, I think, at a, yeah. at a, in a kind of a core way. Mm. I think that's true for many of us. Yeah. And that's, I think that's where boredom comes in too, that boredom is such a threat. I have a lot of, in particular, my, my adolescent clients really mm-hmm. struggle with being alone, mm, really yes. struggle with boredom, um, with tolerating that. And I'm, I'm often trying to encourage them to think about pushing that discomfort a little bit further and sitting with that boredom because what happens next what happens so you feel bored what happens after that Mm. and that's where and i know i'm kind of all over the place here but that's my brain i think that is where social media comes into play too because we've got and i noticed this for myself like here i am worried about my step kiddo being on their laptop a lot and feeling really screen focused. And then I realized I'm bringing my phone into the bathroom. I'm bringing my phone out with me when I let the dog go to go pee. Like, I, you know, there's this constant need for a dopamine hit, which Mm -hmm. again is about picking up the pace internally. And in some ways, I think running away from presence, running away from what we're noticing moment to moment. Mm. And I think, frankly, the buy-in for folks to think about why it might be beneficial to sit with some of that discomfort is just considering, like, what's the alternative? Mm. Does it feel rewarding to scroll endlessly? Not to me, I'll be honest. Right, 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 right. Like, if I've been moving at 100 miles per hour throughout the whole day, and then I try and go to sleep at night, it's hard as hell. Yeah. Because I haven't had an opportunity to slow down. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think what's tricky, too, is, like, if you're not – slowed down if you're not slowing down enough to even recognize that scrolling is making you uncomfortable at the end of the day then we have a huge other problem because i think at least for my own experience when i was going on social media and all that stuff and i haven't really like developed the insight or the ability to slow down and recognize how it was affecting me i would just do it as a habit Mm. and then it took like this practice of time to recognize like oh wait i feel 
insecure when I'm constantly comparing myself to all these people and by scrolling all Mm. these accounts and had to like really recognize that to be able to even say, oh, I want to stop. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, God, like what do we do to like the people that like are still like, I guess it's not our job to save anybody. No, and I think there's a lot of benefits to social media and scrolling. I think scrolling and quick dopamine hits have a place. Mm. I think sometimes we need that quick fix, so to speak. Yeah. To help us regulate, even if it's not full integration of the mind and body. Like when I'm talking about regulation or rest or slowing down, I'm really talking about bringing our minds and our bodies into conversation. Mm. And it's true. Looking at a screen doesn't automatically give us that, but we can also mindfully scroll. Yeah. And there's room, again, like there's a reason why folks lean on substances, lean on food, lean on romantic relationships lean sure. on any kind of thing to bring about a sense of of ease um, when that's harder to do from a mindful place I guess yeah. and I, I think it's more it's less about not doing certain things and more about can you can we expand our tool belt for how to give mm. ourselves more support mm. do you have any advice for someone who wants to start that practice anything that you like lead your clients through in the initial settings to get start this work yeah, so I I will often so I, I I will often ask folks the question I asked you earlier about mm. when they know because folks are coming in oftentimes with concerns around anxiety, maybe depressive symptoms, yeah. maybe trauma, or interpersonal conflict, um, and are looking to make some changes. And so I'll ask them first, how do you know? You know, I'll talk a little bit about that we're going to be looking, addressing things from the neck down Mm -hmm. and how our physiology, how our stress hormones impacts the mind and impacts Mm -hmm. our emotions. And then I would want to know how how can we build out your sense of when you feel most at ease? Mm -hmm. And that might be when you're out with friends and engaging and it might be a fast pace, but you also might be feeling more free, more connected rather than from a contracted or fearful place. Mm -hmm. And so the first piece I want – I encourage folks to begin with is how start noticing when you feel good, whatever good means to you, when you feel connected to yourself, when you feel somewhat relaxed, if Mm. possible, when you notice a sense of safety Mm. in your body. And oftentimes this takes time and some real trial and error because we're not, we're evolutionarily wired to notice when we feel threatened, when we feel stressed. Yes. And so because of that too, that means that it does take conscious practice to A, notice when we're feeling at ease Mm -hmm. and settled, Mm. and B, start to train our nervous systems to find that sense of of contentment, that sense of settle more easily. Because otherwise the body gets shifted into patterns of stress. Yes. And patterns of contraction, of fight, flight, freeze. Yes. And so more concretely, and I know you can cut as much of this out as you want. Oh, it's all in there, baby. (laughs) (laughs) It's all important. I'll, I'll... I'll often have folks between sessions, I will ask them to bring to to the next session something that helps them feel really cozy, mm-hmm. that they really love, like feeling comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I have them bring a sound, which can be a sound in the world or music that they really like yeah. and a sound that they really don't like. Okay. I have them bring a smell or a scent that they really like and a scent that they don't like. And I'll have them bring like a rock. Or something from outside. Sure, sure. And then we talk through and really just experience how they know what they like and don't like. Mm. Mm. How they know that this 
sweatshirt or scarf or pillow is really comforting for them. Whether that's the thoughts they're having, how they feel emotionally, the images that come to mind when they're connecting to that item, the memories that come to mind. Maybe there's something happening in their body that they can notice like, oh, I feel warm or I feel some some loosening in my shoulders when I smell this lavender. And all of that is about starting to tune into the felt sense, Mm -hmm. starting to tune into our bodies a bit more because our bodies are always scanning for what feels good or what doesn't feel good, Mm -hmm. what feels safe or not safe. And so as we tune more into what feels safe, we're going to be able to access that more. And that process does require slowing down. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I I, I mean, partly I'm sure there's a bias here because folks are are choosing to come to therapy, like no one's mandated in my work. So folks are already recognizing that something is not working. And so they're coming in. But I notice... I notice a real like amazing capacity for folks to to slow down in in session. And I do think that's partly the beauty of a the therapeutic relationship or the space that's separate from daily life is that I think the therapeutic space hopefully inherently just offers permission to be mm. and do whatever is needed in the moment that most of our world does not create space for. Right. And so I notice folks really like they have an amazing capacity to land in what they're noticing, mm. even if that means they're they're mostly cognitively processing, which is still beneficial, even if it's not the whole picture. They're still able to land and start to experience the slowing. Mm. There is room to slow down. And even if I, I think it'll feel better than we think it does when yes. we do it. Yeah. And I mean, we also know that when you're starting any new practice, any new pattern, trying to break any mm. habits that you've already formed, it's going to feel uncomfortable. Like yes. growth comes through the uncomfortable stages. Yep. I don't think growth ever feels great. No. And our bodies and our minds really like what's familiar. Yes. We unconsciously view change as a threat. And so this yes. is going to feel uncomfortable at first. And I norm- I try to normalize that with folks mm. all the time. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're so used – and I think – me being like a naturally anxious person so used to a higher arousal state where you know a lot of trauma other things Mm -hmm. always used to just like having to prepare prepare and protect myself then yeah it feels super uncomfortable and like boredom to get back to a state of peace yeah yeah so tough definitely i i also have what feels like a wild amount of anxiety (laughs) (laughs) and it's amazing i think that the thing that i'm trying to focus on right now in my day-to-day is my mind tells me this story that I have to get everything done really quickly. Mm. And in a really like I think this happens a lot I notice around dinner time where mm. I I start when I start making dinner, I'm anticipating my partner is going to be coming home soon and he'll join in and help when he can, but I I put all this unnecessary pressure on myself to have dinner done in a really efficient and quick way. And what I end up realizing is I'm just cranking up the activation, the distress in my body and yeah. this felt sense of pressure but by the time my partner walks in I'm grumpy mm. because I'm so you know it's I, I'm trying rather than on considering the journey or the how of what I'm doing I'm focusing yeah, on the yeah. end result which is this meal is finished at this exact time which no one actually in my life has asked for mm. so I am really trying to to slow down moment to moment and whether that means I mean mostly what that looks like is I take a deep breath yeah like right now because I can feel my my energy is like way up here. My chest yeah. is so tight. Yeah. but And it's also, this is another piece. I think it's anxiety or stress 
and nervousness and excitement feel really similar in the body. Mm. The physical sensations are incredibly similar for many of us. And sometimes it takes some more discernment, some, some mindset reframe to really consider or notice, am I nervous and or am I excited? Like right now, I think I'm both. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I feel energized and a little nervous. But I'm mostly aware of the nervous feeling. And mm. so now I'm going to like actively try and consider why am I excited? And part yeah. of that is I'm talking about a thing I care about. I get to hang out with you. <laughs> yes. I'm using this fancy mic. It makes me feel very professional. Yes. <laughs> and I think that can also be mm. a way of slowing down and of taking a pause. Um, yeah. So when you like feel the duality of two emotions and your head might be focusing on one, you can mm-hmm. also take a moment to pause and acknowledge the other one and see what's also going on with the other one as well, which is maybe more of an active cognitive shift yeah. than what our body's used to, which is focusing on the negative because that's to protect ourselves, right? We know that. Beautiful summary. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. In starting to tune into our experience and bear witness to ourselves mm-hmm. – We're also being curious. Mm. And when we are accessing curiosity, we can't be both curious and in a survival or threat response. And so oftentimes, just the very practice of asking ourselves or asking a client or a friend, what are you noticing in your body right now? What are you aware of in the room can shift our mind and our body out of a stress response, out of a, ah, everything is bad, I need Mm. to push through or I'm shutting down, and into a place of, I wonder, what's this like? Because that curiosity lands and lives in the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And when we're feeling so distressed, and that's a different level for each of us, we're pushed into a fight, flight, or freeze or fawn response. And the prefrontal cortex is turned off. So accessing curiosity is an incredible antidote or balm to to the threat response system that can come online really quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about my therapist when she has me do the five things you can oh, yeah. see, five things you can smell, or five things you can see, four, four things-, things you can feel, yeah, three things you can hear. Two things you can smell, one thing you can taste. Yes. And I always remind my clients too, it doesn't really matter what numbers you use for what. Yes, The exactly. whole point is just to orient. It's yes. just to land in the present yes. and land externally in the in that way through the five senses. Yes. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a really beneficial practice. Mm-hmm. It's so hard though. Yeah. Like just want to be very clear. Like I feel like – Even, you know, the stuff I've been telling you going on in my own life of Mm. having like really difficult conversations with people, I, I feel it in my body. I start to panic and like, and before you know it, you're in this like dissociating space where you're just so up in your head. It feels kind of unreal. And then you're like, okay, five things. You start doing it. And it's like, I don't feel good yet. Ah. And then, you know, if you start to panic, even in the state Mm. that you're trying to make yourself feel better and it's not really working and then slowing down to have the compassion to recognize that like it might not work at first right but the more you keep doing it it will eventually absolutely having that trust in it and the faith and that's why i often encourage folks when i'm teaching a a grounding tool like that to practice it when they're not when they're more grounded or regulated because a it's going to be that'll Mm -hmm. be integrated more as as a as an option yep. and B because you're going to notice the benefit of it a little bit more when we're not so de-escalated yeah. or not de-escalated, dysregulated. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But I agree. I think – and I often will remind folks if it takes you a while to name five things you can see, that's great. 
Yeah. That's okay. That means, A, that's already you slowing down. Even if things are moving quickly, if it's taking a while to name curtain and TV, that whole process, like the the longer it takes, frankly, I think the more benefit because that means you're really t- trying to tune into these senses rather than just running through them out of mm-hmm. habit or automatic mm-hmm. autopilot. Yeah, like a muscle that we're yeah. training, right? I mean, the first couple times lifting that weight's going to feel super hard, but eventually you build the muscles where this mm-hmm. becomes more common and more of a practice that you could do regularly to help yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's tricky though too because we were talking about this earlier when you're one of those super highly sensitive people. Yeah. How do you – how do you <laughs> – yeah, exactly. Hi. How do you try and stay with your own mm-hmm. body sensation? Because I noticed like with you, you're a very calm presence, right? And I and I can feel us co-regulating and feeling mm. calm. And then sometimes I'll meet with other people that are just like – no, you're good. <laughs> And sometimes I'll meet with other people that are just more like high energy states, not necessarily saying good or bad, right? Yeah. But just like, ah, bah, 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 bah. and it gets me and my mm. body to start increase and getting a little bit higher. And I have a harder time coming back to my own like regulation. That's a really great – is that a question? Yeah, that's I guess. Great, no, I do, love how, it. What do, we do, what do we do about our, our sponginess? Yeah. That's where I – and that's I think certainly a growth edge for me yeah. and a lot of – um, somatic work is is first learning, like as certainly as a therapist, but also just as a human in the world, we got to first understand our own nervous system's yeah. patterns. Like for instance, I I have a pretty strong tendency to a freeze response. Like I can feel the activation will increase, 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 and then this automatic shutoff, like the emergency brake in my system pulls, and I'm dissociated. Mm. And that that's something I know in myself. And so sometimes what can be helpful is if I know some of my own patterns and I know what most helps me ground, then A, when I'm holding space with someone else, whether it's a friend or a client, I can better discern what's my stuff yeah. from what's theirs because I'm familiar with my own patterns. And mm. if I start noticing something in myself that's different, like I've got a I've got a client who I really, really enjoy dearly. Yeah. And they, it, it feels, <laughs> I don't even know whether the right words, I often just use a physical gesture sure, to sure. describe them. They are wound incredibly tightly yeah. and have, it, it feels like they are going 100,000 miles a minute, but also have no space to move. And when Oof. I land in session with them, like, although I can run pretty fast on a fast space, I notice myself when I'm with clients, that's when I'm actually most at peace and most embodied, mm. which is one of the reasons why I really appreciate my work and why yeah, it doesn't yeah, really yeah, feel yeah. like work. Yeah. But when I'm landing with this client, I feel this level of like tension and activation. Right. And I recognize this isn't my stuff. Yes. This is theirs because this isn't how I normally – like I'm, I'm taking on, even through, even through a virtual session, I'm taking on what they're feeling. Yeah. And I think even being able to discern what's mine and what's not can already create a little bit of space so that I'm not – fusing with the sensations or the thoughts Mm, mm -hmm. and then the other piece is i think figuring out what helps us ground and what's help helps us slow down best yeah and and that's the other piece that i i start a lot of folks with every session we start this practice of orienting Mm. which is grounding through the five senses basically and 
it's again, it's an opportunity to practice this slowing down in the transitions, especially over telehealth when someone might be on a work call, not even get up and just log into the session. Yeah. And I'm trying to let's rather than diving right in as if you're still in work mode, can we just take a moment, let your body land here. Mm. Notice what you see in the space around you. Notice what you hear. And as you're noticing that, as you're tuning outward, can you also start to tune inward and notice what's happening in your body? And that process, I think, can be a really helpful one when we are sponges, which many of us are. And so figuring out, like for myself, I know the breath, tuning into my breath is really grounding. And I know that tuning into touch, Mm. like feeling my hips on the cushion, feeling my hands on my thighs right now that helps me come back into my body and I can just notice some of the energy dropping Mm. I've also learned for myself that when I orient to sight Mm -hmm. and to nature so especially that's moving slightly so like in my in the space where I'm often practicing therapy in my home we've got a lot of plants and we've got a ceiling fan going and that often invites the the leaves to quiver that's almost always my go-to place to tune into when I'm starting to feel Mm. dysregulated or starting Mm. to feel more keyed up, I guess, because somehow that movement and the green just invites Mm. a little bit more slowness, a little bit more space in my body, and I can start to feel the energy dropping. Mm. And so I'd encourage you and other folks to think about what helps you feel more in your body, what helps you feel more like yourself. For some people, it's going to be sound. And that it changes. It can change for all kinds of different reasons. And so that's the other piece, again, of just curiosity and knowing that if one avenue doesn't pan out, that's okay because there's a lot of others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think about me. Like what do I know? Because I I feel like I I just – this is my growth edge, I think, tuning into my body. Mm. Um, I feel like I I do listen to some degree, Mm -hmm. yeah. But I've been working with one of the people I actually – recorded with on the podcast and she constantly tries to push me back into recognizing my body Mm. and then I realize I'm like I don't even know what I feel in my body sometimes and sometimes I feel like I feel nothing Mm -hmm. which you know and and so even that practice of trying to figure out like what makes me feel good in my body I don't I don't know if I have language and words for those sorts of things yet yeah and that makes a lot of sense because we're not taught that yeah language of sensation Mm, yeah I'm so in my thoughts always Mm. always like there's never not an an area of growth right (laughs) there's never not a time when there's thoughts going through my head about something yeah and I don't think the goal is to not have thoughts right even if you have them can you bring your attention somewhere else even for just a couple of moments yeah I read so much of the Buddhist texts and like the things I learned from yoga mm-hmm. as a yoga instructor and try to come back to like yeah I am breathing like the thoughts are still mm-hmm. focused on the sensation so yeah. it's not like there's no thoughts but right. but like that's not where I'm at like my thoughts are about abstract ideas future past things so it's been such a practice because I feel like a lot of at least what Tazima was talking about was like in terms of enjoying pleasure and sex like mm. it part of that means tuning back into your body to be able to even know the sensations Absolutely. that are going on and if you don't then it's going to be yeah really hard to feel pleasure yes yeah yeah i would wonder too setting aside time intentionally cuz i think you're right like when we're already feeling when we're in an anxiety or shame spiral when our minds are running a mile a minute it's astronomically harder to slow that down and so I wonder about 
starting to build in a practice of give, like giving ourselves body dates. I don't know. I just made up that phrase. Sure. But the idea of like for me, taking a bath is hugely grounding. It feels so good. And so whatever it is for you, if it's a bath, if it's a massage, if mm. it's a walk, if it's listening to a certain song, yeah. and then intentionally tracking sensation or bringing some curiosity to what, what you're noticing in different parts of the mm. body, when you're already feeling at ease to build in that practice again to flex that muscle. Right, 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 right. That's another thing that I'll I'll guide clients through because most folks who I'm talking to at first, don't have much connection to what's happening from the neck down. I ask, what are you noticing? And they say nothing. And I normalize the heck out of that because nothing is still something, first of all. Mm. And second of all, even if if there's nothing happening that you're aware of in the body, you're more aware of your thoughts, that's still something that we're tracking. That's still some awareness of our experience that we have. So I don't want to discount that. Exactly. And it can be helpful to to practice noticing sensation. So yes. I will facilitate what's basically a guided meditation where I'll invite folks, can you notice your feet on the floor? Can mm. you notice, and then getting more and more specific, can you notice yes. your earlobes? Can you notice the hair around your neck, mm-hmm. the the hem of your pants against your skin? And just trying to hone in to what we're experiencing in these smaller moments of the body and yes. even zooming out to notice external experiences and sensations too yes i love all of this it reminds me of yeah what i hope to do in yoga too Mm -hmm. when i'm teaching people right moving through that those meditations of yeah can you feel your toes up into your body all those things that i feel like so much of our lives were up here in our heads because society is telling us that's where all the answers are. Mm. You know, like I feel like Western medicine and knowledge has never really respected any of the body's knowledge to yeah. some degree, right? And so, yeah, we don't necessarily listen to all those pieces. And so, yeah, I'm always trying to get people to go back into their bodies and I think myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that be slowing down to enjoy a piece of an acuity, right? Mm-hmm. Like you take one bite and how can you like actually taste that bite rather than just eat it as food and digesting it so quickly that it just passes on by. Right. Yeah. Mindful eating is definitely something I could probably Ditto. learn more about, right? Like that's <laughs> like, right? All these things mm-hmm. of like slowing down to chew your it's food. It's so hard. It, it does. I think it especially – well, I don't know about especially, but I think the eating piece for me is definitely a growth edge of trying to slow that down. Mm. Because there is something that feels that this little voice in the back of my head saying, I don't have time for this. Or I can't just be with my food, just with my experience of eating. And if we can expand our capacity to to sit with some of that discomfort, I think there's something really cool on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not computers, exactly what you said earlier, right? Yeah. We're not machines. We're so limited in what our focus can be, right? So if you're focused on watching TV, it's going to be really hard to focus into the sensation of the food you're eating, Mm -hmm. right? And so like – and that's – and I guess that's fine if that's what you want to do. You want to focus on the TV or the food. You can make your choices. But I mean at the end of the day, like we can't really do both. Even when we were having lunch earlier and I was eating, like I couldn't – I couldn't eat and really listen to you and enjoy the meal while also listening to yeah. you. And so at the end of the day, I pick which thing do I want to tune into, mm. which is then the conversation. That I think that's the myth of multitasking too. Yes. Like, yes, we can. We we can do that because we, we have to in a lot of contexts. But I do not think that the human body mm-hmm. – I don't know about the mind, but the human body is built to multitask in the way that we're charged with these days. Well, I yeah. think there's – 
so much benefit and and real need to slow to slow, <laughs> slow down that is the that is the motto but um to really give ourselves the full experience of any one moment yeah i think a lot of the hesitance or resistance around that is what if i don't like that moment that's why and when the practice of letting a moment just be a moment letting a thought just be a thought letting a sensation just be a sensation comes in and that's also so much easier theorized than actually put into practice. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely feel that. Yeah. And I also, I think you're so right too. You mentioned how much curiosity and connection to our bodies, our felt sense can also teach us a lot about what we enjoy, about what feels good mm. sexually, emotionally, yeah. energetically. And I really think that's the other piece. Like my, my, my ask or invitation for everyone would be can you start orienting toward pleasure more pleasure in the broadest sense whatever you want that word to mean but can you start tuning into what feels good safe comfortable that doesn't mean we ignore what doesn't feel good or safe or that we avoid it certainly not doesn't mean we don't try and challenge ourselves to expand our tolerance for discomfort what i'm really asking is rather than just focusing on what's hard can we focus on what's soft too or invite some of that Hmm. Yeah, when you were speaking, I was thinking about the slowing down, I feel like allows us to taste the richness that is life. Mm. Right? I mean, food is a great analogy yeah. and example, right? Yeah. Like, we're like having the most delectable chocolate and trying mm-hmm. to swallow it whole. It's like, sure, you can. You'll taste some of it, but maybe if you let it sit on your tongue and melt on your mm. tongue and actually taste it the full layers of the decadency of the pleasure that is before you, you would actually feel the richness. And so, yeah, I think sometimes a lot of our culture is, yeah, one thing to the next. And in doing so, we're missing out on the richness of what is before us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have a concrete connection, but I keep thinking about demisexuality as we're I'm talking so about ready this. for it. Any. <laughs> Yep, let's do it. Well, I have a concrete connection. I think the reason why demisexuality would be related to this is because to even know Mm. whether you're having a sexual desire for someone, there is this level of entunement with your body, right? And so if you know that you don't just have that sexual desire for other people without that emotional connection, that takes a connection to your body first to even recognize that Mm. difference than the normal society of allosexual people and however they function right i just dissociated i'm gonna be honest i oh, don't know okay. why that's okay yeah <laughs> what's coming to you <laughs> i actually just got distracted by a thought in my mind oh do i get to hear what the thought was sure i burped <laughs> i was worried that that it came out in the um in the microphone and then i thought well you know what a, a burp is an indicator of regulation so like if if it was i can and then i <laughs> And I thought, oh shit, Nicole's saying something really meaningful, and I've just thought about my burp this whole time. Do I get to keep that? You can keep any of this. (laughs) I love that. I love that level of honesty. Yes. Um, (laughs) I'm going to need to respond, and I can't. No, you're okay. You're okay. You're okay. You had said that you were feeling the connection between demisexuality and our presence with our bodies and demisexuality. And I was saying, yeah, because you wouldn't even know you were demisexual if you couldn't be able to tune into your body of what's showing up for you to even know whether you have the desire or not. Yeah. And I think that's true for – I think that's true for any type of sexuality actually that – I mean, sex is a really embodied experience. It doesn't have to be. Certainly, I think there's plenty of sexual play that can be – disembodied i guess mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. can still be really valid and yeah. like meaningful but i think a lot of it is rooted in the body pleasure mm. 
is about the body. And I think you're right with, with demisexuality, which I do identify as demisexual. Maybe for me, this is another reason why somatic work feels so needed and so right, I mm-hmm. guess, or like such a good fit is that I I feel very aware of how connected my physical and emotional states are. Mm. And I think that for me is really what, yeah, what, what demisexuality is about, that when I feel emotionally attuned to myself and to, and therefore like that allows me to be connected to or attuned to someone else, then that sexual interest or arousal desire can grow. Mm. But with, it's very rare that that's going to happen without that emotional connection first. Yeah. I would love for you to don't have to define asex or demisexuality, mm. but I think that there might be some people who are listening who have never heard that term. Yeah. Yeah. So my definition of, of demisexuality is, for me, it means that I don't really usually experience sexual attraction unless I already feel an emotional connection to someone. So mm-hmm. like, Walking down the street, I can appreciate that someone looks good, but I'm not – I don't feel any of that arousal in my body yeah. and I don't even feel an urge to like flirt with or sexually connect to sure. that person. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate them aesthetically and I can think, oh, maybe, but I it, it doesn't do anything for me on like a physical yeah. or arousal level. What does it do for people? Because I feel like I'm in the same boat. So I'm trying to always understand, like, what is the other response of, like, an owl sexual even feel like? <laughs> I know both of us like, I don't know. I don't know. Because, I- <sighs> yeah, I've never looked at someone else and been like, God, I want to fuck them. I think people think, feel that. Some they do. People, I've yeah. met my, some of my friends yeah. feel like that. Yeah. I think th- I think that's maybe it. It's like, ugh, I know that I would want to have sex with this person just by looking at them. And I, I, I've never, I've felt, never felt. Yeah. I think, I think I've, the quickest it's been is like one or two conversations and that's very rare, but I still need some, that's why app dating feels like such worst. a monumental waste of time for me because yes. I, I have no physical nervous system, emotional, energetic sense of that person when we're just messaging. Yep. But I still try to do it sometimes because, you know, I get a little bored or have that itch. Yeah. I think even if someone sees a person across the street and want to fuck them, I think a lot of people from my anecdotal experience do feel that an emotional connection or emotional attunement can increase arousal, certainly, and can prompt that. Yeah. Um, So I don't want to say that they're very discreet experiences. Of course. I also think – and I, I, I don't know if everyone who identifies as demisexual feels this way, but I think it does – I've heard demisexuality – about demisexuality, that it exists on the ace spectrum, yes. that it's connected yeah. to asexuality, which I think makes a lot of sense for me. Mm. But it also feels very confusing because I'm also very <laughs> – it's a lot of information for I all of you listeners. <laughs> I'm a really sexual person. Not all the time, but I can be. And it's this weird – sometimes frustrating mix of I want to have a lot of sex, but there's not very many people who I want to have sex with. Mm. Um, And as a polyamorous person, that's more of an option because I am open to different kinds of connections, even if I have partners. It feels like a walk-in contradiction, even though I recognize it's Mm. not. Yeah, I would love to hear more on what those different states are and yeah, what it means for you to be a contradiction. Oh, would you? Okay. I do, yeah. I think sometimes I just wish it were easier for me Mm. to feel attracted to people or that Mm. it felt more clear cut. Sometimes I can't tell for a while. And I think part of that is also being socialized as a woman and 
not really recognizing or fully knowing on like a an embodied level that sex can be for me too mm. until I was in my maybe early 20s. Wow. And so I think there's still a lot of unlearning that I've been doing of I should be attracted to a lot of different people or I should like X, Y, or Z with X, Y, or Z person. And so I think sometimes what gets confusing, it's a mix of things like, yes, I am. I am demisexual. I'm also still learning how to identify and trust my desire Mm. and also trust that when I don't feel desire, even if I think I should or a part of me wants to, um, and learning how to really hear and feel that no. Yeah. And honor that and not push yourself past or into something that doesn't feel authentic to your body and your soul. Yeah. Mm. That's another thing I talk a lot about with clients is – especially with, with AFAB folks or um, folks who are assigned female at birth, mm-hmm. is tuning into the embodied no and learning how to really honor and name that. Because we're not, we're not socialized to set boundaries for ourselves, to say no. Um, we're really taught quite a fond response. And so I think that's definitely a growth edge of mine too. Could you say more on what the fawn response is? Yeah. So we know about, many of us um, know about the reflexive survival responses of fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. The fawn response is, and those all exist like across the animal kingdom, right? Or for the most part, especially mammals, particularly mammals. The fawn response is more uniquely human. And it is another self-protective trauma response. Mm. And the basic, I mean, it, it, it's very related to people pleasing, but like the, oh, the undercurrent of it is really, if I can please you and make you whoever you are, happy, then I'll be safe. And so this can often, you know, look like when we've got primary caregivers, people who are responsible for our safety in some way or another, and maybe they're emotionally volatile or going through a lot of stuff themselves, which I have lots of empathy for, Mm -hmm. but are knowingly or not knowingly putting some responsibility on their young ones, on the kiddos to regulate them. And so then the kiddos start to internalize, okay, if I need to make you feel good, because if you're good, then I'll be good because I'm still reliant on you for safety, for security, for love, because I'm a young person and I'm still learning how to be independent. And that's a response I think that can be developed certainly in early childhood, but also in more in abusive dynamics, in among partners, in friendships, in the work environment. I mean, really, when there's anyone who we are who in a real or perceived way has power over us and they're expecting us to you know, con- verbally or overtly or not are indicating to us that we need to do X, Y, or Z to keep them happy and make us feel secure, then we're shifting to a fond response. And that can be, that fond response can be just as reflexive as the fight, flight, and freeze. That I'm going to immediately yell at someone. I'm going to kind of shut down. I'm going to run away. I'm going to appease. Mm. It's hitting me some kind of way. Yeah, I just I can, have to say. <laughs> I can feel it and see it. That's so fair. Yeah. Because of what we were talking about earlier. Of, yeah. Yeah. Entering into a monogamous situation when you identify as poly because you want to make another person happy. happy. Yeah. To save the safety of a relationship right. that you have. Oof. I'll process that at some point. <laughs> happy to do that with you, I think. Yeah, I think the fond uh, response is so common yeah. um, and not as well understood or recognized for what it is. Yeah, I'd never heard of that term until our, 
our conversation today mm-hmm. as another one of the responses. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense, people pleasing, yeah. right, to maintain your own safety. And that, my God, would probably be like if I had an autobiography, like the <laughs> leading plot line, right, until a certain point in my life very recently of coming into that space. And even now, something I feel like is always working on. Mm. Yeah. Damn. And I think the big piece, too, is that it just like the fight, flight, freeze, it can be reflexive. And so it's yeah. certainly we can start to find other ways to respond to a real or perceived threat. And it's happening at a body level. So we can't just tell ourselves not to fawn. Mm, yeah. Just like we can't tell ourselves when we're really distressed or activated or upset not to have this impulse to run or to mm. yell at someone. Um, and that's not to say we aren't responsible for our actions, sure. but it, it there's this very real <laughs> bodily autonomic mechanism that our body, our brain gets hijacked by the body when we yes. reach a certain level of of fear or distress. Yeah, and the fond response is a part of that too. Exactly. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that that because I'd never heard of that before, mm. and I think that uh, the beauty of these things is that it allows us to have more compassion for ourselves. Yeah. Right. Exactly yeah. what you were saying. Where like. You know, our mind might be thinking something very differently than what our body is telling us to do. Mm-hmm. And how can we have compassion for that freeze or that fawning? I think a lot of time, or any fight, you know, any yeah. of them in trauma, sometimes it's a little bit easier to come back to like, oh, this is my body trying to protect me. Right. And in that, I can have compassion. But we need the language, we need the concepts, we need the ideas to be able to kind of place where we're putting that compassion onto. And until we have people talking about these things, it's harder to even conceptualize that compassion, I feel like. Absolutely. I agree. I think that's yeah. really well well put and a big reason why psychoeducation or just giving some more information can be so helpful. Language. Yeah. Language yeah. and giving more meaning and context to some of these very, you know, we talk about trauma and I think more and more there's an understanding that Trauma is something each and every one of us has experienced to differing degrees. Yes. Um, it is a part of the human experience. It's mm-hmm. not – it doesn't make us wrong or bad and it's not even an outlier. You know, like yeah. so much of – frankly, being born is a trauma to the the child and, and the mom or the parent um, who's giving birth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trauma is something that our bodies are built to withstand, are built to move through and there are very real – impediments culturally, globally, inter and intrapersonally yeah. that can interrupt the the healing from those yes. um, those experiences. Yes, a hundred percent. Yes. And so because of that, we have compassion for how hard this work is. Yeah. Because yeah, it's not gonna feel great that first time you're trying to slow down, trying to bring a little bit more of it yeah, a slower pace to your thoughts, to your actions, mm-hmm. to how you're moving about in the world because there is years of other things that have piled up to tell you otherwise. And so we want to have compassion for all the other aspects that are impeding us and getting in the way from doing this sort of work and recognize that it's going to be a journey. Yeah. I feel like to getting more comfortable and into this space. I think that compassion is where we can also start to take more accountability for change mm-hmm. and, and recognize we can't shame ourselves or no. other people into different behaviors. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That's what people try to do. I mean, it makes I know. years of like, um, you know, even test taking, mm-hmm. other forms of discipline and teaching that are all based on the sort of like shame failure model rather than, you know, actually being able to, I don't know, what was the other way? What did we just say? Compassion. Compassion. Cultivating yeah, Jesus. Compassion for others and, yeah. and self-compassion and empathy. 
that compassion doesn't mean we just let ourselves or other people off the hook, so to no. speak. It means we love each other and ourselves into into knowing and, and, and challenging each other and ourselves to, to do better, whatever that means, yeah. or to grow in the ways that we want and need. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, too, is also recognizing what it means to be human, mm-hmm. right? Like you you have compassion. We don't let ourselves off the hook for the things that are bad and we recognize that's part of like the human experience is growth learning and that we all have the capacity to do absolutely horrendous things. Mm-hmm. And we probably will make mistakes and hurt oh, people. For sure. You know, and, and we'll experience our own pain. Mm-hmm. We'll feel sadness and jealousy and anger and fear. And that's actually us just living the full range of humanity of what it means to be human it's not something to avoid or to fight against even though it doesn't feel good as someone who's still learning how to feel her feelings i i (laughs) lifelong process lifelong process the therapist here is encouraging folks to just create some space for what's arising and then my partner tries to offer me the same thing and i'm like no No. i don't (laughs) want you you make space (laughs) there's my fight i feel that though i feel that though that's how we're able to look at other people, I think, only to the level of compassion that we've been able to grant ourselves. Yeah. So yeah. If, if you don't have that compassion for yourself and when you mess up, I mean, how are you going to be able to give it to other people? I think, too, if we can't give ourselves that kind of compassion and understanding, it's going to be really hard, maybe not fully possible, to actually receive it from other people. Mm. Like, I think we can love people and others even if we don't love ourselves in the exact same way. But I don't know that we can receive love in the way that we really deserve and need if we're not able to offer ourselves that. I would agree. What a a missed opportunity. Yeah. Even though I'm still working on self-love, certainly. (laughs) Yeah. It's a journey, right? And I feel like every day it gets deeper in some way and the more holistic, at least for me, I don't know, right? Like I, I had, have had very like perfectionist tendencies and so letting those go and letting learning to love the human sides of me that I maybe would have gave in a value judgment of negative, you know, learning to love all of that and a holistic understanding of myself has, I think, allowed, yeah, more more space to be loved, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but. That's okay. I'm sitting with it. That's the beauty of relationships. That's the beauty of therapy. That's the beauty of healing spaces and modalities that can allow us to open up to receive more love. And I've always tried to tell people about that, about therapy. If you have no one else to do it for, do it for yourself, right? Like, Mm -hmm. my God, like you'll be able to have more love for yourself. If it's not for you, for your kids, you'll be able to have more love for them, you know? And I think that's where I was – yeah, I I think certainly – Focusing on the self and our relationships to ourselves is important. And I think being able to zoom out and think about how we are connected to and what it means for us to be part of this puzzle piece of our communities, whatever, yes. and families is such a, is another really helpful and needed way for us to develop compassion for ourselves and for others that we don't exist in a vacuum. Yeah, and exactly. We, we don't have to do it all alone either. Mm. I don't think self-love has to be cultivated alone I don't yes. think that's possible we learn how to love ourselves from how we were loved when we were really young mm-hmm. and and certainly how we continue to develop loving and by loving relationships I don't just mean romantic I mean mm-hmm. friendships other kinds of relationships yes there's a lot of ways to learn how to care for ourselves and tend to ourselves with compassion mm. and I feel like that's a lot of what we talked about today right 
Yeah. Learning how to tend to ourselves with compassion. How do we tune into our bodies and in tune to the wisdom that it's trying to speak to us? How do we slow down? How do we connect to our sexual desires and honor mm. them, right? All these different pieces about what it means to honor ourselves. Yeah. Honor ourselves and be able to honor the other people in our lives yeah. who we care about. How like the interconnectedness, yes. I think. And I think – just as you're I'm doing a lovely job of kind of bringing it home. Um, and I think, too, being able to slow down and tune into ourselves, when we're more present with ourselves, we can be more present with each other. Exactly. exactly. And that's why I'm so grateful for my work because it I get to practice that and set those intentions every day. Mm. Yeah, I think that is true. We can only be as present with others as we are with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, saw something like that on Pinterest. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true, and I loved it. It was something where it was like caution. Like, people can only meet you as far as they have gone with themselves. Yeah. And I yeah. was like, damn, that kind of hits. And I've, I've mm. held on to it in a positive Pinterest find. I, <laughs> but, like, you know what I mean? That's the modern age. Yeah, I saw that quote, you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think it's really, really accurate. Yeah. Yes, and this is exactly where I was like, hey, is it, is it fair to have a boundary that your partner goes to therapy <laughs> or something of a similar mm -hmm. level of introspection? It's like, yes, because I want to be met in that same level. Right. Well, and frankly, I think it's okay to have any boundary because that's just about your behavior. That's not about what anyone else does. Yeah. If it were a rule, that would be a different thing. That's true. But it's a, if it's a boundary enough that I would leave a relationship right. for it. That just means you're – yeah, you're considering what are – My future partners. Yeah, what are the distance yeah. – what distance do you need between you and someone else? And if yeah, therapy is a part of that, that's that's absolutely – I like that way of looking at it. What distance? Not like an ending of a relationship, mm. but what distance, right? How do we recalibrate the way we're connecting with people? Like, yeah, if that's a boundary for me, then I need more space so it's not so close. It just – yeah. takes on a different form. There's another SE exercise I do with folks where we talk about boundaries and I help them think about if you – speaking of boundaries and of distance, mm -hmm. what's your ideal personal space mm -hmm. right in this moment? And we start to feel that out. Is the, the, is the separation – is it – what's it made out of? Is it translucent? Is it opaque? Is it malleable? Is it a – you know, is it like a tough metal? Is it sort of ooey-gooey water? What do you need to feel grounded and centered in yourself? Mm. What kind of space do you do you want to have surrounding you to separate from everything else? Yeah. That's a fun one. Mm. I love that because it provides almost like a tangibleness in, in the idealization or the thinking about it. Mm -hmm. fig, fig, I don't know what words to use for that. I think, yeah, I think it engages the imagination. It engages the visual sphere, yeah. the metaphoric. I think it's an expansion outside of just tuning into – what am I noticing in my body, which is yeah. not always accessible. And yeah, we. You, I think there's a lot of different aspects of experience that can be pulled into mm -hmm. when yeah. you're moving through that. Because that's a part of your visual that yeah. experience, right? Your visual, your ability to imagine things, which I cannot do, are <laughs> unfortunately, because I was like, I can't imagine any of those things, but Fair I could enough. metaphorically but you, exactly. know exactly what they mean, right? And so, and for everyone else, and like, yeah, that's a way of connecting to one of your five senses, mm -hmm. it being visual. And you could, yeah, and you could say... I want to – who cares what the, li the literal 
what it looks like. Yeah. You want to be able to move it and pull it closer to you or you yeah. want it to be rigid. Like, yeah. You yeah, think yeah there's Yes. More to it than that. More yeah, to it. for sure. Yeah. 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 I always think metaphors are a beautiful way to connect back and find peace to so much of our language, which feels like ideas and thoughts and how mm. can we connect it to more tangible things that feel a little bit more exactly. Is it sheer? Is it steel? Like mm-hmm. all these different things that allow us to feel a little bit more like grasp on these ideas that can be so up in the air at times. Yeah. I think it can bring us I think metaphor can bring us closer to vulnerable mm. material, sensitive material in a less direct way. Yeah, beautiful. I will acknowledge I am such a literal human metaphor. <laughs> and I think when I, I feel like people are often, if you're a therapist, you must just live in the land of metaphor. And I'm like, mm, unless you're me, and then you're going to be literal as all heck. And it sounds, I mean, from what you've told me, I, I could imagine that you're a huge, huge benefit to the people that you work with. Hmm. That's very yeah sweet and kind. <laughs> I mean, because it's you, because it's not just the words that you're saying. You also yeah. practice it, and I think that's mm. so. Like, I can feel that in how you show up in spaces. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and I I do feel very much like I'm on, for lack of a, it feels cheesy, but I'm on a similar journey, and I do think that personal experience helps me support folks too. I don't often bring that in, sure. but there are moments that I do where I use my own moment-to-moment experience to kind of acknowledge like, hey, I'm feeling this and I don't know if that's something I'm picking up in you or maybe that's my own stuff, but I'm just curious, what are you noticing right now? Yeah. I think that can help bridge the gap that we both have a lot to offer in this collaboration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. How do you feel? Do you feel like you've hit like a peace moment where you're like, I feel like I've said a lot and I feel like I've hit all the things I want to talk about? Do you feel like there are other things that you're really – maybe we didn't have space to talk about yet that you're feeling like I had planned and I want to do this. Ugh, plans. I wish I, – I would love to talk more about polyamory, but I don't know if we have – That's like the biggest thing that everyone loves to talk about. I know. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean like that's like the most listeners, like mm. people tune into polyamory the most. So if you want to talk about polyamory, I'd love to talk about polyamory. Okay. What would you like to talk about? It. I think the thing I've just been on my mind a lot yeah, – I love this, yeah. So is the concept of chosen family – And I think this came up for me a lot at the beginning of the pandemic because the people I was, you know, we all walked down and created little pods. And I realized because of life circumstances, the folks who are in my pod are not the people I would choose if I could have chosen. And like I chose some of you, but I didn't choose most of you. And that felt, I think it really helped me reframe what what it, what chosen family means and I, I i really appreciate and and support and for myself have also benefited from the idea especially as a queer person that mm. we get to choose who we make family with it's not all about who raised us all about blood connection and i think there's also a reality that even when we choose people there's people who we don't choose who are connected to those people and if we're if the if our intentions and our our wishes are to build community and connection, then we're going to have to figure out how to make it work with some people who we might not have automatically chosen. Mm, Yes, because that's what family. That's what family means. Like we don't, like chosen family is beautiful and there's things we don't get to choose about anyone and any group of people (laughs) who we're building with. And I don't hear that nuance talked about as much as I would like. And I think it, like full transparency, and I think I've said this to all the people involved. So hopefully if they listen, it's not a surprise. But like at the beginning of the pandemic, I was with my nesting partner and my step kiddo. And step kiddo also visits their mom 
and their mom's boyfriend half of the week and stays with their biological dad for every other weekend. And so of we weren't going to separate the kiddo from the rest of their family members and their parents. So already I'm potted up with my partner, my nesting partner's ex, like they're people I can see in person and be close with. And then I'm also connected to my part, my nesting partner's other partner, because the two of them were going to make it work and didn't want to not see each other during the pandemic. Mm. So suddenly the people I can share space with when we're in lockdown are my partner's other partner and my partner's ex. Like that's how it felt to me in a really reductive level. And I won't lie, that was challenging because I couldn't see my best friend who lived around the corner. Yeah, wow. And I think, you know, I had a lot of difficult feelings and moved through that. And two years in, I am now incredibly close with my partner my nesting partner's partner because we also date one-on-one and i'm i'm incredibly like i'm also partners with there's the word partner like a hundred times it started to lose meaning no no, Um, basically i'm in like a foursome with the people who were my covid pod who i was initially like this is not what i envisioned this is not what i would pick and i I did choose them and I continue to choose them now every day because I love them all so dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where this idea of chosen family, like I did get to choose. And even when I don't get to choose, I get to choose how I respond to that lack yes. of choice. Yes. Now I'm making – now the word choice means – choose means nothing. But um, oh, I've said does. it so many times. It okay. does. No, I think it, it totally hits, right, that you didn't – it's not like you sought these people out. Right. They showed up because of the relationships that you already have. And yeah. so, yes, they are a variable in your life regardless of what you do. And then in that, you always have the choice to respond. How do you want to respond yeah. to this variable? I think exactly. that's so important coming back to always our freedom, yeah. even when our suffering, even when choice seems to be taken away. I mean – philosophically mm-hmm. like philosophically people will say you know you still have the the power in your head to yeah. choose how you're going to respond to these responses and these stimuli so i think yes it makes 100 percent. i'm so because i know you personally i'm <laughs> tracking with everything you're saying all the people that are not familiar with polyamory would probably be like a foursome what what is <laughs> what what is she saying what does this look like the parenting team i think is oh, also right. a really great like conversation yeah fair enough yeah okay you're right you're right you're right okay so where to begin yeah okay. exactly where should we start what which would you like to talk about first well i'll start with the parenting team i think yeah. because so i and i don't know if i should use everyone's first names it's up to you and their discretion i feel like it's fine okay yeah we'll find out <laughs> let me know family <laughs> So I live with my partner, Caleb. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been together for over four years. And half of the week we take care of and, and love on and, and our my stepkiddo, my kiddo Lucas, lives with us. And they're non-binary, so they use they, them pronouns. Mm-hmm. And Luke has two other sets of parents in addition to me and Caleb. So there's three parent – there's three homes that they, they rotate between. They've got their mom, Nicole, and, and her boyfriend, Ben, and then Luke's biological dad and another – stepmom figure adam and basha and so that's our little family web of a parenting team supporting luke so that was like in the context of the pandemic those were people i was connected to through luke um and through our own choices because you know nicole caleb ben and i get together regularly we're very much on the same page about parenting and about thinking about what's best for luke and getting feedback from them we do regular family dinners and coordinate all kinds of things together. We're figuring out summer camp right now for them. 
So we're very much like on the same page and a really lovely team, which I appreciate. In my practice, I work with a lot of blended families. And I'll be honest, I, this is not the norm <laughs> for all the adults in the family to figure out how to communicate respectfully and honestly and with love, yes. all for the benefit of the little one and, and that, for each other because we're spending time together. Right. That's why I'm so in awe of this. Mm. Right? Fair enough. I think – I feel like I come in with the least amount of difficulty navigating this. Yeah. Like I, I really admire and appreciate Nicole and Caleb and Ben who have navigated a lot of different changes in their relationships. Yeah, that's and true. really – you know, we all really anchor in for what's best into what's best for Luke and how can we care for ourselves and for them and for each other in a way that aligns with helping Luke grow up to the person they want to be. And that's what I'm in awe of. That mm. right there is like that these people are coming together to defy cultural, our cultural norms yeah. that say this is how you raise a child and yeah. to put down those expectations and to work and come together for the unified goal that is the best well-being for Luke. That's amazing. Yeah. I agree. And I really, like, I, I recognize, I'm sure there's some, cha I know there's challenges in bopping between households. And also, it feels so nice to me to have such a wide network of support for, for our kiddo. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really cool for them, too. Like, I, won't, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I see the ways in which they... They turn to one of us for one thing. They turn to another one for something else. Like, they're getting a lot of different models for how to be a human, mm -hmm. for how to be in relationships. And I, I really do appreciate and feel really honored to be part of that family structure because it's it's no small feat on all of our parts that we make this that we make this work in a loving, respectful way. Yeah, absolutely. And then to navigate all those various dynamics. I mean, so were you poly when you met your partner? Mm, no, um, I had tried polyamory a couple of years prior, and it was. Not a good experience. I don't think I was ready. I don't, there wasn't a lot of space for me to talk through jealousy and insecurity with my partner, and that yeah. felt really alienating. So I actually thought, oh, polyamory is not for me. Then I, I, life happened, moved to Chicago, ended a different relationship, and I met Caleb, and we hit it off really quickly. And I knew that he was polyamorous from the beginning and knew that that wasn't, you know, that he wasn't going to close the relationship or to be monogamous with me as a poly person that's not something that would have felt good or in line with his values or his sense of himself yeah and so i thought okay well i will i'll try and make this work and see how it feels for me it's been a it's been a journey i think frankly i do think this is a nice little transition into talking about um our foursome and the the family that we're cultivating there i think mm -hmm. it's been a huge blessing and I, oh, that word is so overused now. It's hard for me to say without cringing. <laughs> yeah. But it's felt like a real yeah. gift and a real opportunity to challenge myself of what are the difficult emotions I don't, I think I, I don't think I can handle, but actually move through to challenge myself to move through them, like fear, jealousy, sadness, fear of loss, um, but also to lean into what are all of the amazing opportunities that, for me, polyamory offers, which is that. I get to prioritize my relationship with Caleb, my relationship with friends, my relationship with other potential romantic or sexual partners, and honestly, most importantly for me as someone who is unlearning codependency is I get to prioritize my relationship with myself. Mm. And being in a romantic relationship doesn't foreclose that option, which historically it has for me. Um, yeah. And a lot of that's my own doing. I'm not, you know, that's my own 
unlearning to be doing. But I really think polyamory has helped me unlearn codependency in a huge way. Mm. Um, And like I would never have met TK and Tien if I hadn't, if Caleb and TK hadn't gone on that date and we hadn't all started hanging out every weekend during the depths of the depths of the pandemic. And it's been such an incredible gift. Like, as I said, these are people I was, no, I didn't think the only people I would be able to see were my partner's partner who I barely knew. And maybe as I shouldn't be so surprised, I love the per- the some mm. of the other people that my partner has connected to. And now it feels just like such a an expansive, I don't know, I feel really grateful that I, I get to feel held and supported yeah. by so many people. Like my yeah. birthday's coming up and, and all three of my partners are planning my yes, birthday celebration are. for me, which, which is looking just forward to. so sweet. <laughs> I'm, glad. I'm so glad you'll be there. Yeah. Like how, A, how wonderful that it doesn't have to fall on one person to yeah. plan something and B, how sweet that all three of them are collaborating for little old me. Mm. Um, it makes me feel really loved. And, I, and I've been able to do that, like partner with the with the other two when and we did the same thing for some other birthdays earlier this year. And it's so nice to just feel like we're on a team together. Yeah. A community, um, a chosen yeah. family that yeah. all comes together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm holding space for the fact that you were identified as monogamous, though, and made that switch. I can't imagine that was an easy transition at first. No. Actually, I asked Caleb to be monogamous with me at first. Oh, really? Wow. And he said no. And (laughs) I said, fair. And I need to take like a week or two to think about if I can really do this again because it had been such a bad experience before um so i took like two or a week or two without talking to him to really reflect i think i basically knew that my that the thing that made me feel insecure was this label of polyamory and my imagination of what that would mean versus the reality of what caleb was saying to me how he was treating me the commitments he was following through on and I think I realized there's a stark difference between what I'm afraid will happen and what's actually happening. <laughs> and so Sorry. that was my anchor. And it continues to be, even though sometimes I get unmoored in my fear, that continues to be my anchor as I'm tuning into the person I'm choosing to be in a relationship with and letting go of the worries and fears that I have that aren't actually about him. They're about past experiences. They're about my what I've been taught about, not about monogamy and about my own yeah. You know, on learning of codependency. Yeah. Monogamy is an equally valid choice, just yeah. like non-monogamy. But many of us default to monogamy. We're not choosing it. We can't choose it monogamy consciously when all we see with polyamory is our fear. Right. Because again, when we're in our um, threat response, we're not thinking with curiosity. Our prefrontal cortex is not turned on. We're in a survival mode. It's all about fight, flight, freeze. And so- Yeah, the first step if we're trying to actually consider a choice that might be threatening to us, whether it's polyamory, whether it's changing jobs, whether it's changing where we live, any, you know, is to regulate, to tune, to ground into the body Mm. and try and think more. I mean, that's what I would, that's what I try and offer myself. Like we can't make decisions when we're in a threat response. We can't make decisions when we're really escalated, when we're feeling defensive, when we're, when we're not curious. I mean, we, we let's be clear. We can make decisions. Yes. That's, we, we do all the time, and I have empathy for that. I do yeah. it. But we're not going to make as intentional or conscious, conscious yeah. decisions. And that's why you took the two weeks away. Yeah, because I – yeah. I think it was probably closer to a week, but I, I needed some distance because I had so much love and lust for him that, like, 
it was helpful to get a little bit of space and to reflect on what do I want? What do I think is possible? What am I afraid of? Mm -hmm. What are those fears rooted in? Mm -hmm. And I just to clarify, like I continued to struggle even in my journal. I remember I wrote, I'm going to give it six months. If after six months, I still feel more distressed than not, this isn't going to work for me right now. Because I like it wasn't it wasn't like I had this week off and then I was like ah polyamory is perfect yeah, fit for me right. I can move through insecurity very easily yeah no I I no <laughs> <laughs> I'm human so no yes. but I think I think that space helped me make a choice that was grounded in myself rather than in sort of the immediacy of the moment or the fear of losing someone. Yeah, which is huge mm -hmm. because then you're making a conscious choice about what yeah. resonates with you rather than fears. Yeah, yeah. Which is not a way to live. I loved what you said earlier, like orienting towards pleasure mm. rather than our fears, right? Like if yeah. you could have the abundance, what life would you construct out yes. of that place rather than thinking about a scarcity fear mindset? Right. Oh, God. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I think that's been a huge reframe with polyamory too is like, well, well, rather than thinking about what I'm afraid will happen, which I did a lot of and still sometimes do. Yeah. What about what I want my life and community and family to look like? How can I start to envision that? It doesn't mean I'm going to make it happen, but it means I'm going to give some space for it to happen. Yeah. Um, and I can set some actual things in motion if, if I'm not just thinking about what I am afraid of. Right. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, a lot of people's response with polyamory is always towards the fear state is mm -hmm. like, well, I couldn't deal with jealousy immediately towards the fear, like worst case scenario that this is what I'm going to have to deal with. Or what if you leave me, right? What if you find someone else better? In that state, you're always going to find a million things. Once you orient your, yourself towards to look for anything, right, you're going to find it. If you think yeah. you're a bad person, you're going to start finding all the data to support yep. that. If you're insecure and focus on that, you'll find all the data. And when you reorient your focus to gratitude, pleasure, other things, like you'll be able to ha see that more mm -hmm. clearly because – I don't know what I'm trying to say, but we have like a bias towards whatever we're focusing on. We do. A confirmation bias, right? Yeah. 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 And I want to say like this isn't to say that we're preaching toxic positivity or be positive oh, all yeah, the time. No. Just to give space to notice what's what's less bad or less scary to notice what does feel good because that oftentimes, certainly not always, but often is there when we're talking about tuning into pleasure, tuning into just noticing what's happening around them, I really encourage actually, can you notice what feels neutral? Mm. Maybe, maybe like, you know, we'll, we'll talk about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensation or stimuli. And neutrality, I think, is an important nuance to find too, because I do think we can code neutrality as negative, like boredom, right? Sure. And sometimes it is too far outside of our scope, not accessible to find what feels good or nice or easeful. Mm. So then what can we find, tune into that's a little bit less distressing or more towards a neutral experience? Yeah. And that can be – it's not all good or bad. You know, there's right. a huge, huge spectrum of experience, of sensation, of enjoyment. And I think that's really important too. <laughs> mm -hmm. I said – Yeah. There was something else, but I'm yeah, yeah, on a yeah, whole yeah. tangent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean – yeah, what I was hearing from you mm. was like you. not to 
sometimes you can also just acknowledge things as neutral. We don't yeah. have to always have a judgment call on what we're feeling good or bad, right? And I'm sure that's how you move through a lot of discomfort of anything, like yeah. transitioning into polyamory from your monogamous state. I mean, I'm sure there was a, exactly what you said, right? A lot of good, mm-hmm. a lot of fears, and a lot of things that might be neutral in between. And we don't always have to box everything into that. We can see the fullness of the situation, that there is good and bad to all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just allowing like these emotions that are coming up are information and I get to decide what that information is. Again, doesn't mean I'm always doing that really intentionally. But again, I think it comes back to choice and how being more aware of what's happening in our experience mm-hmm. can give us more access to choice. Yes. Do you feel like there's anything else on polyamory you really want to talk about hit besides chosen family? Hmm. Yeah, I think the other piece I've really come to appreciate and trust about identifying as polyamory and using that language is that I still and my partners and I still get to choose what that means moment Mm -hmm. to moment or day to day. There's not one way to navigate non-monogamy or monogamy and we get to decide what that looks like and we get to change. We get to change our minds Um, and that's felt really helpful too. Like (laughs) even when TK, Tian, Caleb and I started getting together, again, a little bit fear-based, I was like, I will never... I, I want distance. I don't want to live too close to to them. Like I want more space. And a year and a half into us spending every Saturday night together and me really missing them when I don't get that time, I'm like, wait, you should move up to Andersonville because right. <laughs> I want you closer, right? And so mm-hmm. um, I think I've really learned, again, to be patient with myself and to not try and make decisions from a place of fear, which yeah. I think circles a lot for me back to somatic work and tuning into the body because we cannot, I can't think my way out of anxiety or stress or Mm. fear. Mm. That's not like our minds are just going to continue to spiral. They don't respond. Like at a certain point, again, the brain gets hijacked and the body is in survival mode. So we can't talk our way down. We've got to actually regulate the body first, slow things down in the body. Yes. And that's been a helpful reminder when I can access it. Um, When I do start to feel afraid or worried about X, Y, or Z thing, how can I slow things down from the neck down Mm. and then engage the mind when Mm. that feels more possible and more integrated? Yeah. And I imagine you have been doing this throughout all of your fears with polyamory and getting closer and closer and closer in your attachment to these people. I have. Yeah. Yeah. And I (laughs) – full disclosure, hasn't always looked pretty or Mm. great. I've, you know – um, I've got a real strong fight response in me, mm. as my partners will name the little Aries energy. So I can get <laughs> – usually that anger is is internalized. But yeah, I think in a lot of ways too, polyamory has forced me to deal with attachment wounds I have, to deal with figuring out how – to. it's challenged me to, self, to learn how to self-soothe and to love myself yeah. through distress wow. in a way that – I, I think I could have gotten away with in monogamy, or at least in like unconscious monogamy. Yeah. And I just brought up attachment, which feels like a whole other can of it worms is, that I though. would so love to talk about at some point. I know. <laughs> I know. But it's all applicable, right? Yeah. Polysecure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am just so – yeah, I'm resonating with that concept of learning to need to self-regulate because I think I was mm. – and still am struggling with a lot of like codependent I don't want to say struggling. I've been I'm working through yeah. codependent tendencies and getting so much better, I think. But exactly what you're saying, where I did so much of my regulation with my partner, mm-hmm. like I didn't really know how to ever do it by myself. 
And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in love that you're, I don't know what words to say for it, but I'm, that you're cognizant of this and that you're spending time cultivating this self in a structure with even more people, right? (laughs) Like there's more people going on here. And even in that, you're cultivating more of a sense of yourself. And I, I wonder if that is because just thoughts spitballing here, right? Like when you're in polyamory, you have multiple different relationships to find yourself in. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I think that's true. Like being with a different part of myself comes out when I'm with Caleb versus when I'm with TK. And I get to experience all of that rather than feeling like I might, without even realizing it, I'm losing parts of myself when I'm with someone. And again, this doesn't have to be there's other ways to feel like our full selves. Sure. Friendships. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And that's been true for me. And for, I think having a, a framework of consensual non-monogamy has also helped me prioritize friendships more than our scripture and romantic relationships yeah. often do. Yeah. And that has really helped me land more in certain parts of myself that just don't come out in other in certain yes. relationships. And it feels like such a gift that I yes. get to explore and expand even as I'm also developing increasing security with people, mm-hmm. because I get to be I get to be like rooted and anchored, and also I'm the kite and this. That's a really bad metaphor. <laughs> I, I'm a kite. I'm grounded and rooted, and I'm also getting to flail around yeah. in the wind. Well, I mean, I think it's so beautiful. I do, and I think part of my love of the art of polyamory and all of that is that yeah there is so many different relationships that you can find yourself in i think it then gets complicated like what is the self yourself is is you but like it it's very true what you're saying that different people bring out different things in you yeah yeah or our cells are are complex and yeah. layered and there's multiple parts dynamic that come out yeah relational yeah very relational yeah yeah i mean i think i was i was watching this one video that was talking about the Jungian psychology, which I don't know too much about and seems a little bit on the mystical side, but they were talking about the collective unconscious that Mm. like even our language, the way we relate is through years of other brains that have constructed all of these ideas. So regardless of whether you like it or not, Mm -hmm. the words that are coming out of my mouth came from a consciousness that was when language started and these certain words were created. And so like regardless of what I want to do, it's here. I think that's a really important – even. This is not Jung's language, but like a sure. systems perspective that we exactly. don't exist in a vacuum. Nope. We haven't developed in a vacuum. Nope. We are the product of our environment, including what has come way before us. Yep. And I think that can also help us have more compassion for our growth edges, for what we're continuing to learn. Because mm-hmm. because while we do have a lot of choice moment to moment, there's also a lot of things we did not choose. Internalized value systems that we yeah. did not necessarily choose. Yeah, exactly. And now yeah. that as we become more aware of those different impacts and elements, we get to have more choice about what we do in response. Exactly. Exactly. And how you build that awareness then is connecting into your body mm-hmm. and your thoughts, right? Your thoughts too. Yeah, it's a part but of the experience. Also our bodies. I think yeah. that's yeah, one of my big growth edges I feel like for this year as I manage more things is, yeah, how can I come back to my body to make help me make decisions instead of just trying to rationalize everything mm. and to co-regulate and to – Well, yeah, I would love to revisit that I in know. a couple of months. We can talk more about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It'll be interesting to see how long I do this podcast and it's mm. been interesting just to even see – who I was when I recorded it, you know, all these episodes a year ago, and now these are coming out. Have you listened to the earlier ones recently? Some of them, yeah. occasionally, yeah. 
What's it like? <laughs> it's so interesting. I Sometimes I love what I said. Sometimes I get a little judgmental. Sometimes I'm like, dude, take a breath, you know? <laughs> like, I think that I was so nervous for mm-hmm. so much of it. Um, but it's been such an interesting experience um, to find my own voice, I think. Mm, I can see. I mean, I have so appreciated in our conversation your – I experience you as really grounded, really mm-hmm. curious, and you – You've got a sense of the larger arc in a way that I have no fucking idea. <laughs> sure, sure, like, sure, sure, sure. Oh, this is my first time being recorded. Yeah. And I, I really experience you as such an anchor where you're providing guideposts. You are summarizing. You're asking thoughtful questions. Mm. Um, and I remember that from your first podcast, hearing you. But I think the pace at what you're the, – the pace at which you're moving – has slowed down. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Which is really cool. Yeah, the ability to get more comfortable with something with practice, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and feel more settled in my body when mm. I'm doing this rather than just like pure panic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I really appreciate you saying that. That's very kind. Mm-hmm. And I need to let those words sit in. Yeah. I welcome that. Yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I plan to keep doing it. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it's such a fun project and I think it makes me uh, hopefully a better person too. At the bare minimum, I'm talking to so many random people. It's crazy that are just changing me, throwing out ideas that I just are so different um, than I ever would have had in my own community, right? Think mm. Talking about systems, like yeah. I'm getting thrown into other communities with people that I might have not like ever had the opportunity to connect with across Absolutely. the world. I recorded with one um, – porn star out in berlin like i would have never just like gotten coffee with this person like how yeah oh that's really cool yeah so it's really fascinating to put myself into other relational systems from Mm -hmm. people on the podcast which is also why i really hope that you nominate caleb and tn and tk for the podcast oh not that i'm picking not that i'm picking who you nominate but i would love to have oh i forgot that was a thing yeah okay Done. Yeah, I know. I know. I was like, I hope this is the beginning. Okay, well, then let me ask one last question. Mm. What is the one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, this just feels like it's – you can say, Maggie, this is a a cop-out answer. But my first thought is literally anything that you are experiencing – is normal because you're a human and and all humans are experiencing some some variation of what you've experienced at some point that doesn't mean what you're experiencing isn't unique to you and important but it is normal like the spectrum of human experience and behavior is so wide far more wide than our cultural expectations especially in the u.s acknowledge Whatever you are experiencing <laughs> is normal. Mm. If you that here's a, here's a thing that I often notice about myself and have wondered if it's normal, and I've been able to acknowledge, yes, it's normal. I will have these intrusive fears or I- imaginations of me. Like this would happen a lot when I would see live theater, which mm. I was lucky enough to be able to do a lot as a child. I would imagine myself, what if I lost control of my body and jumped up on stage and started performing in the play. That's a normal intrusive thought. That is your brain just firing off for any kind of reason. And it doesn't really matter why. If you want to explore that, you can, I can. But it's a normal intrusive thought to have. Yeah. Yeah, I think literally everything is normal, including Mm. what we might consider abnormal based on like the diagnostic statistics manual. So. 
yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> no, and I love it. Deconstruct the question completely. Mm-hmm. I think exactly right. Like who says normal to any – who defines that? Patriarchy, yeah, white supremacy, cap- yeah, capitalism, capitalism, the systems that run our lives. Yes. But I know that was yeah, rhetorical. It was, but it's Sorry. also always a literal – you're like, I am a literal person. You told me and here it is. But I think that's the – yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And so I love that you took the time to – pause and say everything is normal these are all variations of the human experience the question is is it causing you distress right yeah. that's like what you're mentioning in the dsm or something is right? it causing you distress is it hurting you or someone else yeah might still be normal exactly. and it also might still be something that is important to to change or to to, to find a way to exactly to alter exactly exactly yes i love that distinction and i hope that even in the sharing of your own personal story of an example right and that <laughs> yeah. that willingness to be vulnerable and to share that 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 might help someone who may have been battling for so long with all these thoughts wondering something's wrong with me because i have these thoughts yeah thank you for that and yeah. i yeah i don't have a clever way to sum that up but that's why to. that's your job <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I, I just, yeah, mm. I feel like you've, you were just very calm and you were also very vulnerable about your own experience. And I love that you included the burp and I love that you, <laughs> like, that's the humanness. And I, I can tell that you're such an intellectual and that you've thought about so many of these ideas in so many sophisticated ways and turned them and grappled with them and flipped them around. And so it's just always an awe mm. to get to share space with you. I appreciate that. And I'm really yeah. grateful that you made time for this. It's been really fun. Um, and it's a good opportunity for me to practice talking in front of people. Mm-hmm. You um, said you like theater. I do. Here's your stage. Uh. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.